of Trump supporters started walking down on either side of this gathering. Then one of them walked into the middle of the gathering in front of the Black Lives Matter sign out in front of this church, which is set up against a statue of Martin Luther, the famous Protestant, um, you know, uh, founder of, of many of Protestantism, as it were. And this Trump supporter then pretended to fall down, and one of his companions walked over and put his knee on his neck in a an attempt to mock and to mimic the killing of George Floyd by police last year in front of all of these clergy who looked on in this disgust. And then that pair left the gathering and walked over to the church across the street, ran up the steps of that church, which were being filmed by local news crews, and then repeated that display. Jack Jenkins is a national reporter for the Religion News Service. He is describing a scene at a historic church in downtown Washington, D.C. on the morning of January 6th, not long before President Trump incited supporters to storm the United States Capitol. We will never give up. We will never concede. It doesn't happen. Stand up and fight. Let's have trial by combat. This week, we begin with a developing story, a domestic terror attack on the United States Capitol, incited by a sitting president and the contrasting responses of faith leaders, reflecting both the diversity and the deep divisions that run through this nation. Jack and I spoke on the morning of January 7th. It was just a few hours after Congress certified the election of Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, marking the last procedural step before the January 20th inauguration. On the morning of June 6th, Jack was covering progressive religious leaders who had gathered in front of the historic National City Christian Church in Thomas Circle. They were there to unfurl Black Lives Matter banners, and several news stations were present to cover the event. It was a show of solidarity after the desecration of historically black churches in December. But that morning, clergy stood in shock as two members of the Proud Boys dressed in army surplus gear ran up the steps, standing under the banner, as if performing a skit and began to mock the murder of George Floyd. A local Lutheran bishop told me that it it deeply unsettled her and um, that she was still trying to figure out how to process it when she was speaking with me um, and how she saw it as deeply offensive to her as a person of color and also just as a a Christian. Um, And you saw that in the eyes of many of the other clergy who were gathered there as well, who also voiced to me, you know, just disgust with what they saw. This demonstration I'm discussing was one of the larger um, physical demonstrations of clergy in D.C., and it seemed that faith leaders were more hesitant to directly encounter them. Traditionally, clergy have occupied that role of positioning themselves between counter demonstrators and kind of Trump supporters or Proud Boys or what have you, or police in some instances. And that was very different this go-round. And I think there's a lot of subtext for that. In December, Proud Boys attacked Black churches, They are one of the groups responsible for inciting violence, and one President Trump has not only refused to condemn, but has praised. Clergy were not engaging this week. Instead, police stood at the behest of the faith leaders to protect their houses of worship. And that was for a reason. Trump 
supporting extremists had not shown, you know, relatively any restraint with regard to what they could do to people. And I think that says a lot about how unsafe a lot of people in the District of Columbia feel regarding these demonstrators and, quite frankly, clergy in particular, because their churches and their houses of worship have been targeted. At the time of this taping, the District of Columbia remains under a curfew, and President Trump continues as commander-in-chief after calling his supporters to charge the Capitol, which they then seized for more than four hours. It was a failed attempt to pervert the democratic process of transitioning power to the next administration. One thing was abundantly clear, the notable absence of force used on the predominantly white protesters who had been violent in December. In contrast to the summer protests, the difference is night and day. Jack remembers the flashbangs. I remember last summer when uh, we had racial justice demonstrations here in D.C., and um, the response was so intense that, you know, people you know, all night long after the clearing of Lafayette Square, you know, we could hear military helicopters hovering above the city. We could hear flashbang grenades going off from, you know, uh, on the other side of the city because of how many were being used against demonstrators. Jack is quick to note, though, that the mayor of Washington, D.C., earlier this week requested National Guard support from the Trump administration. Those requests were denied. There was also a silence from religious leaders in Trump's inner circle. As of the morning of January 7th, when we spoke, Jack had not seen a critical mass rebuking and condemning the storming of the Capitol as a terror attack. And I mean, you have to understand, there was this thing called the Jericho March, which was this gathering of primarily conservative Christians who processed around the Capitol and blew shofars um, in this imitation of the biblical story of besieging, of the walls coming tumbling down, I guess metaphorically in this instance. You know, the night before all of this, you had um, one self-identified pastor praying for the Proud Boys. Proud Boys showed up yesterday at the Capitol. Reportedly, people there referred to them as God's warriors. When these people stormed the Capitol yesterday, there was footage of people on the Senate floor holding what's often referred to as the Christian flag, a white flag with a cross in the corner. And as all this occurred, there was a giant banner right near the Capitol that read Jesus 2020 and some people holding signs that said, Jesus saves. I I say all that to make sure that we highlight the fact that some of the people who were there seemed to be a part of the broader evangelical Christian movement or a part of this Christian nationalist identity movement. And so I think it puts some of these uh, these evangelical leaders in an interesting position where, you know, arguably some of these people were listening to them when, misinform- when misinformation was already being spread. And they clearly were listening to the president when he spread baseless allegations of election fraud and voter fraud. So I haven't heard a swift condemnation from evangelical leaders about this. Um, and I'm curious what it will look like moving forward. Several denominations and religious traditions have spoken out and issued statements The Religion News Service is continually updating the list. But what is notable is that pastors from Trump's inner circle, including Franklin Graham, have echoed false allegations and conspiracy theories that Antifa was in fact responsible. I had some evangelical leaders um, early on in conversation saying that they were hearing this theory. And again, conservative lawmaker from West Virginia, like live streamed himself raiding the Capitol, right? Like this is, unless he's a secret Antifa false flag, like these are completely baseless allegations, but they were already hearing them. If you go down into these, you know, more 
Christian nationalist circles in evangelicalism, um, you will find evidence that people will say, oh, this, this might have been a false flag operation. Even though these people did it on camera and that their identities are very unverifiable and many stories have been written about some of the people who raided the Capitol, you know, this misinformation seems to be a thing that spreads very quickly. By the evening last night, it was already showing up on Fox News. In contrast, a group of diverse religious leaders gathered for a Zoom prayer session. Within seven minutes, the call was full. We attended and heard different themes from diverse religious leaders from across the country. The call was organized by Faith 2020 in coordination with the Biden transition team. Jack suggests this will be the first of many events, anticipating the Biden-Harris administration will turn often to progressive and mainstream faith community leaders to play a greater role in the days to come. I do think faith is going to play a significant role in that, um, because I think Biden and his administration and now many of his prominent supporters see faith as a unifying force. I also don't want this to get lost. Um, The peculiar and complex nature of faith, you know, like I said, there were people who were, you know, raiding the Capitol yesterday, people who were called God's warriors and carried Christian flags. But in the Capitol, while that was occurring, um, we now have reports that the House chaplain, the newly named House chaplain, uh, a Presbyterian minister, uh, she went to the microphone and led the House chamber in prayer as demonstrators were raiding there. And then up in the balcony, um, we have video evidence of one uh, House member leading her fellow House members in prayer as well. And I think it's important to kind of remember that like faith has a lot of complexity and that it continues to persist um, even around these moments where one group might claim it as their own. I think that that power that faith seems to have in those troublesome and harrowing moments is precisely what Biden, I think, is going to want to speak to, to try to appeal to that unifying nature of faith. Whether he'll be able to pull that off is anybody's guess, but I think that's the goal for his administration. One person who is focused on healing is Valerie Cower. She is a spiritual activist rooted in the Sikh tradition. Here she is on the prayer call, sharing her feelings and reflections and inviting others to join her in her call for a people's inauguration. The beloved community belongs to divine oneness and so does all that it achieves. My husband's brother, Manu, was in lockdown today in his office in the Capitol building, reporting there behind locked doors for CNN. Manu's voice, as we were listening to it on the screen, was calm and collected. We were not. My husband and I were on the phone with his parents and his wife and our whole family, holding each other, getting each other through this, through our tears. My hands have been shaking. I have been sobbing. Manu has just been evacuated to a secure location. He's not home yet, but we hope he'll be home soon to return to his children. And I'm just now feeling breath return to my body. And as I'm being aware of what my body is carrying, I'm noticing this hot rage inside of me. This is not the murderous rage, the vengeful rage that we saw in the Capitol. This is the rage of a woman of color who has seen her family in harm's way 
again and again and again for the last 20 years. It's a familiar rage. It's the kind of rage we might feel, you might feel now, in the face of cruelty, violence, injustice, assaults on our safety. And my loves, if you feel rage tonight, I'm here to tell you as a person of faith, if you need to scream or cry or wail, it's okay. You see, I call that divine rage. Divine rage. It's the rage that flashed in the eyes of Jesus when he overturned the tables of the money changers in the temple. Divine rage. It's the rage of Kali, the Hindu goddess who battles demons in order to protect us. Divine rage. It's the rage flashing in the eyes of Guru Gobind Singh Ji, my Sikh guru who challenged empire. The aim of divine rage is not vengeance, but to reorder the world. So our task, our task is to make sure that this energy of rage that we feel inside of us does not explode. We cannot become what we are fighting against. No, our task is to harness it and to channel that energy into creative nonviolent action to do as Audre Lorde, black womanist, calls us to do, to dance with our rage, to focus it with precision and power. And I'm asking you now to focus your attention on January 20th. Government is necessary, but it is not sufficient to heal and rebuild our nation. We saw that today. What we need is a people's inauguration. We, the people, need to be inaugurated into the labor of healing and transitioning and rebuilding and rebirthing this nation block by block, heart to heart, for we are entering an era of transition. Over the next 25 years, will we continue to teeter on the brink of civil war as we saw today? Or will we finally begin to birth the America that we dream? the multiracial democracy that our ancestors labored for. That is our work. That is the work of our lifetime. Will we carry America across this threshold or not? To do this, it requires us to be brave with our grief, to harness our rage, to lead with love above all, and to summon all the bravery and the wisdom we can. And so I leave you with the wisdom of the midwife, for this will be one long labor. Let's breathe tonight, my loves. Breathe. Tomorrow we push. Vaikurujika Khalsa, Vaikurujiki Fateh. A prayer from Valerie Cower, a 39-year-old faith-based activist and civil rights attorney based in California. And Jack Jenkins, national reporter for the Religion News Service. Coming up, we shift from Washington, D.C. to Post Falls, Idaho. Stay with us. Hi, friends. I hope you're enjoying the show so far. 
I just want to say thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being part of our community. I don't know if you know this, but we are on the air all the way from Richmond, Virginia to Ketchikan, Alaska, and in so many places in between. We're a national show, and we are a small and mighty team committed to bringing you stories and sounds from around the world that convey not only the diversity and the pluralism of our country, but the beliefs that are shaping our world, our politics, our culture, and the ideas that sustain us and inspire us to think about where we are going. And that brings me to this question. If you value us, if you enjoy listening and appreciate what you're hearing, I want to ask you to take a moment to consider becoming a sustaining member of Interfaith Voices or make a one-time donation at interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. That's interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. Thank you, and let's get back to the show. Welcome back to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. I'm your host, Umbreen Khan. This week, as we try to make sense of what is happening in the country, we acknowledge that it can be hard to listen to people with whom we disagree. But we know that listening is the first step to better understanding the beliefs that motivate and inform the behavior, especially of those we do not understand. And that includes people of faith who believe their religious freedoms are being oppressed by the government that restrictions on indoor gatherings to prevent the spread of COVID are not legitimate, but rather part of an agenda to curb religious practice. It's not a point of view we often hear on this program. So in November, when Tracy Simmons, an award-winning religion reporter and journalism professor, reached out with this story, it caught our attention. Since 1990, the United States Census Bureau has reported that Idaho is one of the fastest-growing states in the country— The reasons or motives for that trend most often documented are affordable housing. But political culture, it turns out, may also be a factor. Gallup research shows that in 2018, Idaho was one of 19 states rated as highly conservative, meaning it has more conservatives than liberals by at least 20 percentage points. Tracy Simmons reports about a new wave of transplants, Conservative Christians leaving neighboring states in search of a different kind of freedom, where communities can ignore public health directives with impunity. She brings us the story. Pastor Dan Hegelin opened his non-denominational church in Tacoma, Washington, only about six months before COVID-19 struck. After having to move worship services online, and frustrated by Washington State's strict COVID and masking guidelines, he closed his church and moved his family to nearby Idaho, where there's religious freedom, he says. His family includes his mother, 80-year-old evangelist Linda Meisner, known for her work witnessing to gangs in New York City with David Wilkerson back in the 1980s. If you've read The Cross and the Switchblade, her name may sound familiar. Together, the mother and son are doing street evangelism in Spokane, Washington, only about 30 minutes from their home in Post Falls, Idaho. Linda is working on opening Jesus People Coffee House in downtown Spokane, while Dan 
a renowned vocal coach and choir director, is starting to lead gospel choirs in Idaho. Dan was born in Europe and traveled throughout the country for his work as a choir director and Christian activist. He was most recently living in Sweden before moving to the U.S. a few years ago. You kind of left that in search <laughs> I left, of... I left America. Sweden, <laughs> which is a centralized, oppressed, you know, I mean, this is just an interpretation, not objective. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know friends who love it, but from my experience, mm-hmm. it feels very oppressive when you're not in charge of your own life and when people tell you what you can do you know, where you can go and all those things. So I left that to come to the U.S. <laughs> to pursue, you know, the land of the free and, and liberty and, and freedom of religion and all of these things that are promised us through the Constitution. So for me, 2020 was maybe, I wouldn't go as far as to say traumatic, but it was really, really difficult to, to see America to go the way of, let's say, China or something like that, like move in a totalitarian regime. Our wonderful Governor Inslee and all the mayors and so on decided to shut down everything and for practical purposes, shut down the churches. Small churches like ours didn't have the resources to follow all the dozens of regulations that you had to follow if you wanted to open. So for practical purposes, we were shut down. You know, hindsight is twenty twenty. I think most churches or a lot of churches, if they would have known that they were planning to shut us down basically permanently, mm-hmm. we would have never gone along with it. But that wasn't how it was introduced. It was introduced, uh, we need to shut down for a couple of weeks just so we won't uh, be a burden on the hospitals. This was This was how it was sold to us. So logically, I'm thinking, because, I mean, the Bible does talk about Uh, you know, that you listen to public officials and things like that. And so then I'm thinking, well, that doesn't seem like a very big sacrifice. We can close down for three weeks and and help out the hospitals. We'll just meet on Zoom. It's a great opportunity to learn how to use this technology that I I haven't been using. But then, you know, the story just kept changing. And I mean, the rest is history, as they say. The three weeks turned into three months and who knows, maybe the three months will turn into three years. Who knows? But it turns out that it wasn't really about helping out the hospitals. It was about something else. When you have to just trust blindly what the media is saying, that makes it harder. Because if I was seeing people dying like flies in the streets, I'd probably be willing to do anything, right? But I have no personal experience of this COVID thing existing. I only have it based on what the media is telling me. What I mean by that is I have a huge social network, hundreds of friends. Me too. I don't know a single person who is affected by this in a severe manner from hundreds of people. Yet the media makes it sound like people are dying like flies, like it's, you know, the black death and and just... The hospitals are overfilled and then, you know, every other person is dying. It's like, wait, I don't understand. I know, let's say I know 100 people personally and 
none of them are affected. And I ask them, do you know someone who's affected? And everyone says they don't know anyone who's affected. That makes it harder when it's like you're being told to give away your liberties that are guaranteed by the Constitution because of a threat that you cannot observe. I mean, the only way it's observable is people wearing masks or shops being closed, but it's not observable in, in that, oh, I lost someone. Oh, my cousin died. Oh, my best friend has a friend who died. No, it's not observable in that manner. I felt very confident that Inslee would win again. And Inslee has just gotten it into his mind that COVID is like the most dangerous thing ever to, to exist. And so I just felt there's no guarantee that he's going to open up in a few weeks or a few months or even in a few years. There's a reason to leaving Washington and then there's a reason to coming to Idaho. So, so let's start with leaving Washington. Number one, just discerning, judging that we would not be able to open up our church or anything that I do for a living. Choirs. I've been a choir director for 30 years. I can't start choirs. I can't do concerts. No, I do concerts. No singing allowed. So, so all the things we want to do, the coffee house, we, could, we would not be able to do any of those there. And reason number two, I would say, is the quote-unquote culture revolution that I just described. The feeling that you are not free to be who you are. You feel like you're living in a society where you're being watched. That's not an American thing. Now, why Idaho? We had heard good things about Idaho, so we tried it out for a week during the summer. We went for a vacation in Coeur d'Alene. There wasn't a single sign on the freeway <laughs> telling you, stay home, you know, don't go out. You know, you could possibly die or whatever. I mean, in Washington, every other sign on the road is telling you that, you know, you're living under some horrible condition. There wasn't a single sign in Idaho telling us to be very afraid. People weren't wearing masks. Stores were open. Restaurants were open. People were on the beach, sunbathing and swimming. Everything felt free. When I have to weigh freedom with a minute risk towards <laughs> against complete lockdown, you know, I prefer the freedom. I'm not saying there's absolutely no risk going about your life as usual, but you have to keep in mind that 3 million people die every year without COVID. I'm not saying 200,000 isn't a lot of people, but we shouldn't pretend like before COVID didn't die. No, 3 million people die every year. That's part of human life. Birth, death, birth, death. I think President Donald Trump said, we can't have the solution be worse than the problem. Mm -hmm. And I definitely feel that in Washington state, the solution is worse than the problem. And here in Idaho, you feel free and you're not afraid to wave an American flag or to say, you know, to say, I like President Donald Trump. Um. So let me ask you kind of a hard question. Yeah. Do you feel like you kind of abandoned your flock in Tacoma? Um, I try to not regret things that I can't control. So I don't feel like I've abandoned them. No, 
I just feel like 2020 has been a remarkable year. I am not able to do those choirs. Even if I did stay, I would not be able to do the choirs. It wouldn't change anything. It would just be me there feeling sorry that I couldn't do the choirs, but I can't do the choirs there. The same with the coffee can't house the or with coffee the church and so on. And, and another thing about law and order, what you'll see here in, in Idaho, big signs saying, you, ap- you know, you absolutely have to wear masks if, you know, coming in and coming out. And then you see, you know, 95% of people ignoring it, including myself, <laughs> myself and, and our kids ignoring it. And I don't really like that. I mean, I would like to raise my children to obey the rules. And I find it really <laughs> frustrating that I'm actually having to teach my children to disobey rules, if you know what I mean. I mean, what are we teaching our society in 2020? I feel like we are teaching our society to break the rules because the rules are arguably unjust and unfair and go against other rules. I mean, they go against the Constitution, some would argue. It's not that you see there's any harm in wearing a mask. It's just that you feel like you're being told blindly to do it without justification. Yeah, I mean, I I think I do feel there's harm in wearing the mask. Mm -hmm. Psychological harm. You know, it's no. Yeah, I don't think it's any health. You know, I don't I'm not afraid to wear a mask. But I do feel, first of all, I get if I wear that mask and when I was in that surrounding in Washington, I was getting panic attacks. So was my wife. What is it doing to us as a society? Where is it taking us as a society? And how does it harmonize with our rights guaranteed by the Constitution? I feel prior to 2020, I have obeyed all rules and regulations, always. And 2020 just has lowered large chunk of the population, their trust in law, order, and institutions. Although Dan and Linda are now living in the Gem State, they're still ministering in nearby Washington. It's like a mission field. <laughs> That's a mission field? Well, I mean, it is. I mean, basically here, it feels more like peace and tranquility. Mm-hmm. But you go to Spokane and you see an, an imminent need. Yeah, but I met a few of my friends that I had known and they began to tell me about the situation in Spokane. What I heard was very serious. What situation? You mean drugs? And... Uh, exactly. And uh, I went down myself to check it out, and I got really heartbroken. There were so many young people downtown Spokane on meth and on heroin. I walked down the alley. I saw the needles, and I, I saw uh, evidence of other drug use. Homeless, runaways, just hanging around all downtown, and homeless everywhere. My friend brought me to the Mosaic Center there, and I was talking to him when the pastor just happened to walk through, and uh, the pastor spoke right up, well, we have this whole building, and there'd be space here for you guys. And they have a church in there, and they have a, a celebration recovery there just packed with broken people, and uh, and they have the youth of Christ there. 
He showed me the location. It's a great location, right in the middle of the devil's headquarters. So let me ask you both, as Christians and mm-hmm. as Christian leaders, um, what is your prayer for our country? Because there is this division, and well, you see it night and day, just at this border, right? Yeah. Just a few miles over, stark difference. How do we kind of start to unify? Repent of their sins and turn from their wicked way and seek my face. That's Second Chronicles, Chronicles seven fourteen, maybe. And that has been a prayer. That has been a prayer. I feel it's it's really important in general for us to get back to normal, <laughs> to not to not be in this heavy cloud depression and let it hang over us. And the same I feel is true with prayer in my prayer life. In that. I don't think it's healthy if our prayers have the color and flavor of a heavy cloud or a dark winter, as Joe Biden would say. Tracy Simmons spoke with Pastor Dan Hagelin and his mother, evangelist Linda Meisner, in the northern Idaho town of Post Falls. They attend a megachurch nearby while traveling back across the border to run their new ministry. Jesus People Coffee House. Their conversation took place in mid-November. I want to note that we did reach out to Pastor Dan through Simmons to ask if he had any comments or statements to share in response to President Trump's supporters forming a mob and storming the Capitol on January 6th. He relayed through Simmons that he did not. Coming up, my conversation with Tracy Simmons about the reaction to her story and the challenges of covering a movement of people who are deeply suspicious of the media. Welcome back to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. I'm your host, Umbreen Khan. We just heard journalist Tracy Simmons in conversation with Pastor Dan Hageland and evangelist Linda Meisner. The Hageland family moved from Tacoma, Washington to Post Falls, Idaho for political reasons. They wanted to live in a community not observing COVID-19 public health mandates. Their decision, it turns out, is not an isolated one. I talked with Tracy Simmons to learn more about why she felt this story was important to share. Have you been surprised by some of the reactions to this story? So far, people are noticing the trend themselves. And so they're glad now to see some faces to it and to hear the stories. You know, they've heard that people are fleeing to Idaho because the restrictions aren't quite as rigid. Uh, The restrictions are more lax. And this was happening before COVID. It's a conservative area. Washington state is turning more and more blue. So people were glad to see that there's some data now, some realtors who are seeing this and to hear a family story um, about having this experience. Um, Other feedback I've gotten is disappointment from people who live right on the border because they love Idaho and it's such a beautiful place and they don't want to see it overrun with anti-maskers, you know, so, uh, yeah, it's kind of, it's been interesting. What inspired you to do this story? I was tipped off 
by a friend of mine who lives on the west side of Washington State who had who knew this family and knew they had moved to North Idaho. And she thought it was interesting. There's kind of been this storyline for a while now that all of these liberals from California are moving to North Idaho resort towns and taking over. But I kind of saw that maybe there's actually another story here, which is that conservatives are actually moving to Idaho, trying to keep it conservative because they see it as a place where they can fit in and they belong and they're safe. Um, And so I decided to kind of dig into that. And it turns out that that is that is the trend. I would say if you look at the U.S. Census, you can see that Idaho is I think it's like the fourth fastest growing state and it has been consistently. It's cheap. I live right on the border of Idaho and it's much more affordable than Seattle or California. And people are looking for a place where they can have those conservative values and raise their family. One of the realtors who I referenced in my story moved his family from California to Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, which is a resort town, because he wanted his kids to be raised with traditional values and he wanted to be close to nature and it was affordable. You know, and I think that's a, a pretty common thread for sure. Well, and I was also struck by the the kind of the association or the notion of religious freedom. That was a strong theme that plays out in your story. And you hear it as they think about and talk about restrictions. Well, I thought it was interesting. Pastor Dan, who I talked to for the story, he said, well, look, we were asked to close down our churches temporarily so the hospitals wouldn't be overrun. And he said, this is the right thing to do. This is being a good steward. But then when the churches didn't reopen after three weeks or after three months, he said, wait, this isn't doing a favor for the hospitals. He saw it as an infringement where the governor is trying to shut down our churches. That's what this is about. It's not about COVID anymore. And he's not the only one who feels that way. There's a lot of churches who feel this way and have just decided to operate as usual regardless. And I know there's been a couple churches in the Spokane area that filed lawsuits that have recently dropped those lawsuits. And in Idaho, across the border, churches just kept meeting as usual. You know, um, Pastor Dan, his family have decided to go to a megachurch there in Post Falls and they don't wear masks. There's thousands of people. I don't know if they're sitting socially distanced or not, but that's what they were searching for. And they found it. It's interesting because there have been quite a few news stories published on outlets like Religion News Service and and others that have documented how houses of worship, particularly some of those kind of mega church events, became in some communities super spreader events that led to pastors dying or members of the family dying. One thing that was striking to me is the the reaction of Pastor Dan. You know, there was this level of skepticism about the stories that documented people dying from attending a house of worship that was known to have become a super spreader event uh, in which not everybody died, but it was enough people that it was documented as such by the Center for Disease Control. What did you make of his reaction to the media coverage of COVID? As a journalist, I always find it disappointing when people don't believe the media that's in front of them. Yes, the storyline in 2020 has been dominated with Trump and COVID. And if you are pro-Trump and you are of the belief that COVID is blown out of proportion and it's not real because you physically can't see it within your circles, then 
yeah, that's what we're seeing right now is that the media, the media now has become uh, fake. It's a storyline that they're pushing. It's agenda setting, right? And that's what that's what they believe. I hate to see that. And I see it with a lot of people. They're losing trust in the media because that's those are the only two stories out there and there's so much more going on in the world. But, you know, I think that we have to trust what the media is telling us, but you have to be a good news consumer, know which news to trust. I know that you teach journalism to students, and I have to imagine that this climate in which you're one is be- contemplating becoming a journalist, that this would be extremely disheartening. The trust issue, though, specifically in media and media reports of COVID is definitely one dimension. But what about the numbers, the toll? And every day, the toll number keeps changing. So at the time of this conversation, more than 355,000 Americans have lost their lives. It's the leading cause of death in the United States this year. That is not a, that's not an agenda. That's a data point. And I'm curious, Tracy, how did you see them internalizing or believing that data point? So the way that they view it, it's no different than a common cold. That's how many people get the flu, get a cold. They use the term sheep. They refer to all of us who wear masks as people who just blindly follow and are using our critical thinking skills which I thought was was interesting. They said that they're not seeing people die in the streets. There's no one they know who's been affected. Mm-hmm. And you know, three months ago, I didn't know anybody who was really impacted by COVID. It was headlines that I was seeing. To me, that didn't make it any less real. But in recent weeks, I've definitely seen a lot more people I care about who have lost loved ones to COVID, you know? But until they can see it physically, it's not real to them no more than a cold or, or the flu. And, and they think it's the government trying to make it worse than it is. And there's no reasoning with that, you know? No, I, I'm also struck by the analogy that I've heard some make to the absence of national mourning and grief. You know, you're saying that you were reading the headlines. You are a journalist. You trust certain media sources. You think critically and you look at different sources, different competing sources, I imagine. And it is striking because... One of the things that I I know many people who think about this through the lens of social psychology and social trust is that as a community, the absence of shared rituals that have broken down because of quarantine, because of lockdowns, because of social distancing, and the lack of a public mourning and a grieving and a naming and humanizing of a very large number that can feel really numbing is part of the challenge. You spent a lot of time with this mother and son who have this passion and this conviction that's genuinely held. I mean, you can hear that in their story. I'm curious how the topic of mourning and grieving had come up in the conversation. It came up in the way that he said, death is a part of life. You know, life, death, life, death, it Mm -hmm. happens. And he said, it's the circle of life, just like you're going to lose people you care about to a car accident or to alcoholism or to cancer. Mm-hmm. This is just another thing. And we can't stop living because of it. And, you know, control came up. Um, the issue of control came up in our conversation because I asked him, I said, do you feel because he had a church in, in Tacoma and he just closed it without warning and moved to Idaho. And I said, do you feel like you abandoned your church, your congregation. And he said, no, because there are things I can't control. He corrected himself. He said, COVID is one of them. Actually, 
the government is one of them. Mm, okay. And so he couldn't control how he worshipped in Washington State because of the government. So he moved to Idaho, which that was how he took control right. of, of living without masks, of being able to advocate for Donald Trump and to be able to to worship and to be able to sing in a choir again. Mm-hmm. Which I, I have to point out, singing in choirs are identified by public health officials as being one of the most um, risky actions in a house of worship. I want to ask you, when you met with them, had the election been decided? Yes. So kind of. <laughs> mm-hmm. A lot of Trump supporters were still saying it's not over till everything is counted. I think they're still counting a few states. Yeah. I'm struck by that, too. And I'm curious that if in reaction to a Biden-Harris administration and in is that if that's going to influence, especially over the next few months, uh, another wave of movement. Yeah, I think we're going to see a wave of people moving to Idaho. And even if there is a blanket mandate from Biden-Harris, that doesn't mean it's going to be enforced in any way by local officials in Idaho. When you describe the impetus to move, it's political. It's a desire to be with a different tribe that's defined by party identification. And it is not new. I mean, we have talked about on this show when you and I have talked several times about just how polarized the country is right now and what are different actions that can create opportunities for understanding. But I can't remember a time hearing people say, well, I want to move because I want to be in a blue state or I want to move so that I'm in a red state. I know people have chosen to move because they want to be closer to the water, closer to the mountains, closer to the beach, um, closer to family, closer to relatives. Maybe they want a different commute. Maybe it's the economics. Most often I hear people move because of their jobs and education. I think they were more concerned about getting away. You know, so not only were they worried about COVID guidelines and restrictions in Washington state, they didn't want Jay Inslee for another term because Mm. he's a Democrat. The Black Lives Matter movement in the Seattle area, which Tacoma is not far from Seattle. So there was some protests and stuff happening in Tacoma where they were too. They wanted to get away from that as well. And that was a big thing for them. Mm. All of this, they called it a, a, a cultural revolution is happening in these blue states that they didn't want to be a part of. And they associated that cultural revolution with a progressive liberal movement. And so they did want to be closer to a tribe, which would be a Republican, conservative, evangelical tribe. Mm -hmm. I think that this conversation that you brought to us and that you're sharing with us, I hope will offer more dimensions to listeners who may see those who are making these choices in one dimension. Yeah, I think these stories are really important. I've done like a lot of reporting on North Idaho. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I did a story on survivalists and people who live off the grid. Right. I did a story on a cult that's taking over a town on the Idaho border. And I just think these are stories that we need to hear because they may make us uncomfortable, but they're happening in rural America in these communities that the Seattle Times isn't going to cover you know, New York Times isn't going to cover, but it's happening and we need to know about it, not so that we can be divided further, but so that we can understand one another and understand what motivates one another. And my hope is that if I can take the time to understand why this family is picking up, closing the church, 
moving to another state, if I can just learn about them and understand them a little bit more, maybe they'll take the time to understand me a little bit more and maybe we can actually find some common ground. And that's kind of my whole mission as a, as a reporter, yeah. you know, a religion reporter. Tracy Simmons is an award-winning journalist specializing in religion reporting and digital entrepreneurship. Currently, she teaches journalism at Washington State University and serves as the executive director of Spokane Faves, a digital journalism startup covering religion news and commentary in Spokane, Washington. I want to take a beat here and just thank you for tuning in this week. I also want to remind us that we are still in the grip of a global pandemic. This morning, my sister, who lives in Alabama, shared that the positivity rate for COVID tests in Birmingham is 47%. That means for every 100 people being tested, nearly half are testing positive. She is a nurse and her husband is a doctor, and they are pleading with friends and family to wash hands, maintain social distance, and to wear a mask when you are indoors and in public. Unlike the Haglands, I know several people who have contracted COVID-19. Some have survived, others have not. My mom lives in a nursing home, and over the last year, she has lost several friends to COVID. I know my family is not unique, and I know there is an enormous disparity in who survives and who does not. While I believe strongly in creating a space to hear from people with whom we disagree, I do not believe it's responsible to share misinformation or seed doubt about the science of public health and the emergency that we are in. While the Haglands choose to not follow public health mandates, COVID-19 continues to surge, including in Washington state. The hospital system healthcare workers both in Idaho and Washington are impacted and strained. Friends, I am appealing to you to follow public health guidelines. Politics and political identity aside, I want you to stay safe. I want you to find safe ways to stay connected. And as we wrap up this week's show, I want to invite you to learn more about Interfaith Voices and to consider joining one way that we're hoping to create some connection. We're starting a book club, and I hope to have people with different points of view participating. We'll meet once a month virtually on Zoom. I would love to have you join me in conversation. To learn more, sign up for our newsletter at interfaithradio.org. If you have thoughts about this week's show or have ideas or feelings about what is happening in our country right now, I want to hear from you. You can send me an email, amber at interfaithradio.org, or if you want to post on our social media, we're at Interfaith Voices on Facebook. A special thanks to our producer, Kevin McCarthy who has put in tremendous time, effort, energy, and long hours to bring this week's show to you. A thanks to our founder, Maureen Fiedler, and MC Yogi for our theme music. If you missed any portion of this episode, I invite you to head over to interfaithradio.org where you can stream it in its entirety and find show notes for this week's episode along with links to the guests that we featured and the episodes that we referenced at the beginning. If you like to listen to podcasts, I invite you to subscribe. Just search Interfaith Voices. I'm your host and executive producer, Umbreen Khan. I want to thank you for listening. Wherever you are, I hope you are safe, and we will see you next week. <laughs>